You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the Train Track Enclosed Nerve Center. That's the headquarters of the Office of Cable, TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment. It's also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of DC. If you don't follow us already, you've missed the boat. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the Council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the D.C. Council's just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Listeners, we're working our way through recording three rounds of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The previous rounds focused mainly on getting to know the council members' backgrounds, successes, struggles, and the people who shape and surround them. In the fourth round, we're broadening things out, tackling issues that interest the council members and me. And uh, as fans of the show, and uh, Colby King, I'm talking to you, um, as fans of the show know, um, we always start each new round of interviews with uh, my council member, Ward 1 council member, Brianna Doe. So welcome back, council member. Thanks. Good to be back. Um, and it occurred to me that um, given that it's the Passover season, yes, that uh a little a little song came to mind. Oh no! That um, when we need, uh, when we when we have a new round of interviews, uh-huh. get Brianna Doe. <laughs> well, it, it's from it's from the Passover it song. It is. Yeah, you know, let our people go. Oh, let my people go. Let my people get Brianna Doe. I got you. Okay, now I'm with you. I thought you were going to sing Diane. I feel relieved. No, no, no. Okay. But that is a good song. It's so catchy. Is it though? Yeah. Okay. To me it is. Okay. Um, so in, in any case, we are focusing on issues this round. Um, and the issue that the council member wanted to tackle was public safety. Um, so we're going to be taking a broad look at public safety. And the way I wanted to open this up, uh, the council member has an annual public safety summit. Right. And in looking at the emails that have gone out from the past couple of years, public safety summits, um, the intro to this year's email caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes something like this. Um, I want to make sure all residents feel welcome, which is why we have a new format that strives to strike a balance. MPD plays an important role in maintaining public safety in Ward 1, 
But based on feedback from residents last year, we've reduced the number of officers who will be present during the open house portion of the evening. Mm -hmm. That said, I'm aware that many residents appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity to meet with their neighborhood officers, which will happen during the second half. What occurred to me was if there was any other agency mm -hmm. present, yeah. you would never say that. Right. That half the people, if DPR was talking to a meeting about parks, right. you'd never say some of the people at the meeting are going to want a bunch of parks and rec reps here. Right. And half the people aren't. Right. So I. I I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate sure. here, um, but kind of talk me through the, uh, yeah, the need happy to, to say that. Absolutely. So thank you for that. So when I first got into office, I knew that public safety was important to my constituents and that it was going to be critical to find ways to communicate that were, were proactive and positive. And one of the ways that I like to communicate with constituents is being there face to face. And so we started this. Um, annual public safety meeting um, and really try to do it in the spring to get ahead of typically get ahead of what is the the warm weather crime wave um, and the event started off as a meet your officer type event where folks could come and sit and we grouped them by their police service areas at tables um, with their lieutenants um, and we had a speaking portion and then a breakout where folks could talk to their officers about the issues in their neighborhood. And that was really positive. Um, but my, my understanding of public safety and how police interact with individuals and community has really evolved since the beginning of my first term. And that's to say that, you know, my experience as a white woman with police is very different than many of my residents of color, um, young and old. And so I've started spending a lot more time looking at public safety issues from their shoes and their point of view and understanding that um, you know police interaction with that community is not always positive. So last year when we had our meeting, um, MPD really loves this meeting because they love interacting with the public. And so they come out in, in full force, uh, literally, and fully uniformed. And I looked around the room and it was kind of overwhelming. And some constituents who were there pointed that out and said, you know, this would be a really scary space for someone who had been traumatized by police. And so this year I've asked the commanders to come. Um, to the beginning of the meeting with only their captains. So we may have five or so uniformed officers for the first hour. And then those who want to stay to the breakout groups can do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the uh, the follow-up to your last year's summit, I did my homework, damn it. Um, the follow-up notes uh, to your last you. year's summit, um, the, I guess there were some questions that maybe didn't get gotten Answered. to during yeah. the meeting. Yeah. And the very first question uh, was how am I supposed to feel comfortable in a room with this many guns? Right. And right. that was just shocking. Right. Um, right. Because it, in, again, coming from a certain perspective, one could think the people holding the guns... Are there to keep you, you safe. Right. That you could not feel safer anywhere but where you were, given right. who, but that clearly is... Right, we not used to joke it was the safest place in Ward 1, right? Right. But not for but everyone. It's not a funny joke. Yeah, not for everyone. Yeah. Well, it's really, um, so uh, folks who listen to the the um, show probably know about the NEAR Act, but I'll just, uh, they'll humor me for a moment, hopefully. 
The NEAR Act is the comprehensive criminal justice reform the council's been doing over the past couple of years. It was landmark legislation and includes evidence-based models that are used across the country and a real public health approach to public safety. It acknowledges that you can't solve crime just by putting more cops on the street, but that you have to get at the root causes and you have to do um, trauma-informed response when there are incidents, but that you also have to do violence interruption and you have to get people onto paths um, for careers and education because most people who are out on the street do not want to be standing out on a corner selling drugs. They would rather have a real job and a career path and benefits and, and be able to take care of their families, right? And so that's where we're trying to go. And I think sometimes in community, people mistake that for, um, you know, not also believing that we need police. And for me, it's both, right? It's sort of a blended solution. I'm not saying that we should pull all the cops off their beat. I'm saying we need to do all of the above. And so these events over the years, I think, have really started to show that. After the last annual public safety meeting, I did a follow-up event in the fall called Transforming Public Safety, where we talked uh, exclusively about the NEAR Act and also my Street Harassment Prevention Act which um, was really great. We did some like role-playing scenarios and people really came together to talk about each other's experiences and interactions with police and on the street with harassment. And um, the more that I can be a convener of those conversations, the more I think we really can move forward as a community because this is really hard stuff. I mean, when someone shoots a gun in your neighborhood and hits someone especially, that's really upsetting for everybody involved. It's never gonna be okay, right? There's no amount of crime that's okay. Um, but I'm just acknowledging with all these other um, uh, initiatives that we can't keep doing the same thing we've been doing, which is essentially traumatizing an entire set of neighbors, people of color, um, with a racist system um, that has been in place for generations. So that's really what I'm trying to do. It's it's um, People are sometimes surprised to hear me say it because I am white and have had a really different experience in the world and, and have privilege, but I think it's even more important for white people to say these things um, than it is for the people we're supporting in many cases because, you know, it's less obvious and it, it I think is, it stems the tide a little bit or turns the tide a little bit. And I think it's one of the, uh, the uh, gifts that technology has given us that that sort of without video footage it might have been more difficult for people not of color yeah. to understand the the experiences of people of color, mm-hmm. uh, the harassment they undergo, the whole crazy series yeah. of videos that have come out, and the I mean the hundred or two hundred now daily experiences yeah. that have been caused for harassment. Yeah. You know, standing in a hotel lobby, selling lemonade, you know, yeah. the, the, the the whole ridiculous list of things. And by seeing the video, um, it, it brings us to a place where it's hard for us to not be dubious of, of police. Yeah, it does. And I think for some people. And then for other people, it's still easy enough to look at those things and say, oh, well, that's the one cop or it's the other. And and I, I will say I have a great relationship with the commanders in my ward and I really appreciate the work they're doing. Well, but what we do see 
um, and I think in every police force really is, it's all of these individuals and all of their biases together that create a biased system, right? And so that's what we have to get at with all of the work that we're doing now on race equity um, and, and racial bias training, because if we don't do that, we're gonna keep having the same result. There was a news story today, and I know this is not gonna air same day, but it'll still be, you know, it'll still be bad news. It, there was a news story today about somebody, an officer handcuffing a nine-year-old boy. And that's, to me, that blows my mind. Because when you get to a place mentally where you as an adult think the only way you can diffuse a situation with a nine-year-old is handcuffing them, then we have problems, right? I mean, I get it. Children are challenging. But um, that's not even close to where we should be. I mean, that's a baby. You know, a nine-year-old is now going to be traumatized for the rest of his life because he was handcuffed for doing something. And to be honest with you, I don't even know what it was, but it doesn't matter to me because it's a kid. Um, and, you know, those are the choices that individuals make as that, you know, add up to this, uh, the bad situation that we've been in with policing across the country. So... Right, and it's hard to imagine a circumstance where where there's true community policing, and neighbors know their officers, and officers know their neighbors, where you would see right that happen. Right, somebody should know who that kid is, and no, don't handcuff that kid. Right, also by virtue of them being a nine year old, but right, yeah, let's call his mom. Let's not put handcuffs on him. Right, right, exactly. Um. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would hope that we would get to a case where, where now, like I said, through technology, folks that might have been inclined to trust police regardless of circumstance are gaining some healthy doubt. Yeah. And then I would also, I on, the, so. on the flip side, I would think, like just like there's no atheists in a foxhole, I assume that even those most dubious of police in, God forbid, the worst of circumstances would hope the police would come in the worst, yeah. in the worst of moments, and and I hope that kind of we can come to a common, yeah, a common mindset where we're all dubious when we need to be dubious, and all hopeful when we need to be hopeful. Yeah, I think we might be a long way off from that, but that's where we should. That's where we want to be, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and now, uh, the, now this is not the politics hour. I don't want to. Channel, channel Tom Sherwood. Wait, I was going to say, no one's been interrupting me, so say, I know Tom put, Sherwood isn't here. <laughs> that, that's true. I was going to say, you know, it is called the politics hour, so let's get to the politics, but it's not it's called not. the politics. But why why was the NEAR Act such a, a tough pill for the system to swallow? It, it you know, yeah. it, it, it was passed, uh, was it passed unanimously? It was, it was passed it, unanimously. Yeah, um, that one wasn't hard on the council. It's been on the executive side that it's been hard. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it passed, but was unfunded, yeah. and then there was a dribble of funding, and then with like much, much, much council pressure, it eventually got fully funded. Yeah. What, what was the problem? Well, I, you know, I think that sometimes uh, the executive would rather implement their own ideas, right? And and so it's always better when we're all on the same page, but that doesn't happen so often. I just not in my in my day, in my all my four and a half years, I haven't seen it really happen that often. So you know, when the mayor has her own priorities and this costs a lot to implement, you know, that's part of it. Now, the other part, now that so we spent a lot of time honestly filling budget gaps instead of 
funding this. And that was frustrating the first couple of years because there's only so much money to move around. Um, but I'm really, um, I was so proud of the work that both council members McDuffie and, and Allen as the, the chairs of the Judiciary Committee and the time that this has been um, implemented and enacted and implemented have really pressed to get it um, fully funded and implemented. The, the thing that we have now is we're not getting all the data that's required under the uh, act. And, um, you know, there have been hearings on this and the answer is basically, well, we don't really have a good way of sharing the data. The technology is not great, et cetera. So, you know, part of that data, the data we do have isn't it doesn't look good. Right. So we have data that shows use of force, for example, is predominantly white officers towards uh, people of color. Not shocking at all, but also not good. Um, and we don't have all the stop and frisk data. And I did a, an op-ed in the Post a, a couple months ago, maybe, that basically called out uh, MPD for that issue. And ACLU is actually suing them over it. But if we don't have the data to show how it's being done and that's being done lawfully, then I don't think they should be allowed to do stop and frisk because the whole tactic, which is essentially stopping someone without cause and frisking them because you have like a limited amount of information that you're trying to find a person, um, and maybe that's the person, is really a violation of um, of our rights and also doesn't help. I mean, the data that of, of other cities and, and how stop and frisk has been implemented is it doesn't it doesn't tend to find the person you're looking for it pulls a bunch of other people into the dragnet and it traumatizes the people who've been stopped and frisked and the entire community that it's happening in because it makes everybody feel like a criminal and again you know the the scenario you you posited where you know we have true community, community policing and everybody knows their officer and they're comfortable around them that really can't happen in neighborhoods where police are just randomly stopping people and searching them. So, you know, MPD would say, no, we don't do that. And I just have enough people coming to me and sharing their stories that we know that it's happening in some form. And I just don't think they should be allowed to do it at all. Um, and if they want to give us the data, we can revisit my position on that. But right now we don't have enough data to know that they're doing it in a way that's lawful. So that's my big concern on that one. Yeah, and, and this is not a, a stop and frisk example, but um, there's I, I walk to work most days, um, and there's a gentleman who I stop and talk to, um, who I I don't know if he's homeless or in transition, but yeah. he told me a story about how he was um, officers came up to him. He was sitting by the side of the street, and they said, "We want to talk to you. We're not arresting you." Um, and they took him to the side of the street. Um, and they said, um, talked to him for a while, and they said, oh, now, now we are arresting you um, because um, you, uh, we think you were selling drugs at the 7-Eleven. And he said, I haven't been to 7-Eleven today. And, uh, and they said, well, we have positive ID. You were at 7-Eleven. Uh, took him to the, the 6th District, booked him, um, and kept him at jail overnight um, and ended up the next day, uh, no papering him and letting him go. Jeez. Um, and he and I were saying, what is this? Is yeah. this, is this, first of all, 7-Eleven, you got to know there's like 50 cameras right. in the 7-Eleven. Right. So, so they either could he was there or he wasn't, what, yeah. but you would know. And you could show, right, either he was there or he wasn't, either he was the guy dealing or he wasn't. Um, and he said, there's nothing I can do about it. Like they just stole a day and a half of my life. So we were saying, like, what, you know, it, it, 
because crime stats are another big bone of contention. Yeah, exactly. You know, crime stats, um, they go up, they go down. Right. You know, and they can be manipulated multiple ways. Yeah, you know, like definitely. This will show up, you know, I don't, depending how the crime stats are done, this could show up as a drug sale arrest. Right. So even though it was no papered, so that will look good in terms of the cops being aggressive on drug sure. sales. You know, other times, uh, if there's a breaking and entering, they might get the people to just report it as a vandalism, mm-hmm. which will show that breaking and entering is going down. Right. You know? Right. Um, but what do you do in those cases? And this poor guy is traumatized, spent the night in jail. Right, for no reason. And he sat up and down, and he had no drugs on him and virtually no money on him. So we were joking, either he's such a good drug seller that he sold out of drugs, but he's so bad at it that he had no money from selling all the drugs. Right. So I, I felt terrible for the guy, it's, and he just is traumatized and has no recourse, or feels that he has no right. recourse. Right, yeah. I mean, I mean, he could, if he wanted, he could file a complaint or he could sue but I mean those things take time and, and money yeah. and he probably doesn't have you mm. know time time for either and so. they're holding his cash because they see it as evidence and oh, he has to go no. and file separate paper to get his small amount of cash he yeah, got on that's him back. crazy that's crazy so it's not quite stopping for us no, but, but it's just it, the level of harassment example, you go you know? through it's on a daily example. basis and I will say because we're kind of like you know we're, we're ragging on the police a little bit here and that's I mean that's that's sort of where we go and when we're talking about these these criminal justice issues. But I will say, too, like one of the big issues that we have right now is gun violence. And MPD has really been hustling on getting guns off the street and the real challenge. The villain here is Congress, right? So we have some of the strongest gun laws in the country, but the guns keep pouring over the borders from Virginia and Maryland. And that's what's being used in violent crime. And a lot of the crime that we see really is very basic disputes between people that happen to be armed. And if they weren't, you know, would be more more like a fist fight. And instead we're seeing really violent crime. And so we need, I mean, that tells me a lot of things. One, obviously we need federal action on, on gun control, but the other is we need better tools for people and community for conflict resolution and coping mechanisms. And that's also part of what a public health approach to public safety does is really get at those underlying issues. And, you know, I, I will I, I will be called naive. I will be maligned for really taking a progressive approach to public safety. But it's not, like I said, an either or, right? You have to do something different when, when the same thing hasn't been working, and especially when it hasn't been working for a particular set of people. Um, but we're not talking about you know disbanding the police force, right? We're talking about making sure that they're not saddled with the baggage uh, that comes comes with everybody who's interacting um, in, in these crimes, right? Like a lot of what I do is on the human services side for public safety issues, right? So we have, as you mentioned, folks who are homeless, who are hanging out in public spaces that might need some support. We have people experiencing substance use disorder, addiction, and you know, it doesn't do anyone any good to send police to arrest somebody who's overdosing or who's passed out drunk. It's not a good use of police time and it's not gonna serve the person who's experiencing it. So we also spend a lot of time, I, I spend a lot of time in particular on um, working with Department of Behavioral Health and uh, Human Services on making sure we have our street teams out and, and rounding through and talking to people. Because that's, that's as big of an issue as anything else in Ward 1, and I know across the city. Um, and in this budget, actually, a federal grant is sunsetting, 
of $3.5 million that goes to homeless outreach, those street teams that serve the homeless population, and the mayor did not replace it in her budget. So I'm now, as the Human Services Committee chair, frantically trying to figure out how are we going to replace that program because we can't just have nothing. And the behavioral health teams are not really equipped to deal with homeless um, outreach. So, you know, that's a uh, that's very real issue for the council right now. And um, we're in the middle of budget, so we got to solve that soon. And back to the NEAR Act, yeah. um, a, a success story is the, um, the violence interrupters. Why did the council initially have to fund that through the attorney general's office? Mm-hmm. I mean, the council, the one thing we can't do is run a program. Right. Um, but when the entire executive branch won't do something, we can't run it. Yeah. Um, and in that case, if I'm remembering the details correctly, we gave the money to the attorney general's office who ran a pilot and it was a success. And now it is being run by the attorney general's office, but now a parallel program is being run through the executive. Well, OAG, first of all, Carl Racine, our first elected attorney general, Ward 1 resident, love him, huge fan. He's doing incredible work with limited resources, and I think um, we should very, be very proud of the work that he does and the way that he represents us across the country with other attorney generals. Um, he His office does a lot, was has always done, um, the attorney general's office has always done a lot of youth intervention and diversion programs. And what I mean by that are, instead of um, locking up youth, we can put them in a program that helps them move on to a different path. And then if they complete that, then they don't have to go into the criminal justice system, which is a win all around, right? Again, nobody wants to be locking up kids. So they that's a really effective program. It has uh, you know just a great return on investment and they've been implementing successfully. So I think it was very logical that they would be uh, a great partner on this too. And violence interruption is huge, right? When you've got a beef going on in a neighborhood and you don't halt that, it could go back and forth for weeks, months. I mean, people can be, lots of people can be killed and lives ruined. And um, so anytime we've been able to invest in those programs, we've seen a huge change. We uh, we had a lot of violence in LaDroit Park this winter and um, our Collaborative, the um, Collaborative Solutions for Families in in um, Columbia Heights uh, worked with the Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, and they were on the ground, and they got you know one of the kids who'd been involved, young youth, uh, old older youth, back to school. You know, it's a perfect example, right? I mean, let's put down the gun, let's get you in a program, and you can go somewhere for real. Um, but that's huge. I mean, we have to do that times you know thousands, right? And a lot of it is one at a time, so it's pretty thankless and and. It's hard to see the progress sometimes, but it's there. So, um, and now, kind of looking forward, like the Near Act was kind of the the, the chapter that kind of the lens that um, we've we've seen progress in the past couple of years. Quickly, can we talk about the sort of the racial equity lens yeah. that I know is going to be shaping the council's work uh, for the next, I mean, for years, yeah. but but yeah. is sort of the next chapter. So there's a. Um, hearing tomorrow on the Racial Equity Achieves Results Act, the REAR, I guess it's the REAR Act, the yeah, NEAR Act and the I, REAR I, Act. I Maybe we're not, we might not call it the REAR Act. I don't yeah. know. We'll have to talk to Councilor McDuffie about that. So the idea is that, um, that we have institutional racism within our government that has negatively impacted people of color for generations. And it's true of most governments, right? It's 
it's a legacy of slavery. It's the legacy of redlining. It's it's all of the opportunities that people of color haven't had in our communities. And um, this government and this council in particular has been trying to set that right and to reverse that trend. And 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 it starts it starts with us council members. We've been doing race equity training. Um, we have, um, I'm, I'm trying to do uh, some race equity trainings in the ward. I learned yesterday that Montgomery County does one like once a month for anyone in, in the county that wants to go. I wanna start doing that kind of thing in Ward 1. I'm actually doing a equitable development plan for Lower Georgia Avenue so that the people um, who've been living there all their lives, longtime residents don't get pushed out as it continues to develop. These are the kinds of things we're doing. The Racial Equity Achieves Results Act would, um, require us to apply a race equity lens to all the work we're doing on council. I mean, bill by bill. And that's huge because it's not something we've thought about really systematically before. But it's, it's you know, the same lines of the way we decriminalized fare evasion because um, fare evasion was creating arrest records and it was primarily happening to people of color. You know, it's all of these systems that are in place. We're trying to roll them back, decriminalizing marijuana before it became legal. Now we're working to seal the records of people with marijuana arrests Um it all goes together and ultimately helps people have better access to jobs and housing um, and opportunity that they haven't had. And we need to see that equity here in the district. Well, unfortunately, this was a giant uh, topic that we barely scratched the surface of. And I left essentially no time for uh, the fun closeout round, um, which I haven't entirely solidified anyway. But we're going to just do one question. Okay. Um, and the question is, uh, technology mm-hmm. is critical to us. Mm-hmm. So if I was going to take away these uh, critical modes of communication, um, which tell me the order that you um, cherish them. So phone, text, email, social media. So list them from the one you cherish the most to the least? I cherish email the most. I would go text, then phone, then social media. Please take away Twitter. Just take it away. So social media you'd most readily give up. I would, and I know that's terrible because I'm supposed to be a young council member. I'm supposed to be young and I'm supposed to like embrace social media, but I'm an old soul, man. I'm an old soul and, and it kills me and I'm not good at it and I admit that. That's okay. We can't all be me. You know, that's yeah. just that's the reality. But send me an email and I'll get back to you. Yeah, no, I'm 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 up there. I'm probably I don't know. I guess if I want to keep my job, I'm probably social media, email, yeah, text. Well, phone. you're great on Twitter. Yeah, well, I kind of need to be. Yeah, I wasn't when I started. If that if that helps. I don't know. Um, well, anyway, sadly, we are out of time. Thank you again, <laughs> uh, Councilmember Nadeau, for being the uh, the inaugural uh, sacrificial lamb of of each round of hearing the council. Um, We are uh, here at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I am Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you. Take care.